Good morning. We are continuing our study through systematic theology, and we're actually having the youth join us as we kind of jump into our next section. Um, so we're going to be kind of a conglomerate class getting to go through soteriology together. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have again this morning to come before you. We ask that you would help our hearts to be prepared, help our minds to be submitted to your word. We ask for your spirit to work this morning. We need to see a bigger view of who you are as you've revealed yourself so that we can live in a way that glorifies you. We love you, Lord, and we pray for your help in these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So far in our study through systematic theology, we've covered bibliology, which was a study of God's word. We've studied theology proper, the study of God the Father, Christology, of God the Son, and pneumatology of God the Spirit. Next, we looked at anthropology, which is the study of man, and in there, we covered also hermartiology, which is the study of sin. So our review right there was probably less than 30 seconds, but it's taken us several weeks to go through all of those subjects in preparation for finally getting to jump into soteriology, which is what we're going to be starting today. So before we dive into our introduction lesson, I wanted to as a way of a bibliography of sorts, um, give you reference tools. Uh, these are great books for you to purchase for yourself, to have in your library of resource tools. We've been using and mentioned several times already Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. We've mentioned a Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem and then two other sources that we're using in regards to the study we're going to continue to do in soteriology would be The Five Points of Calvinism by David Steele, Curtis Thomas and Lance Quinn, and then also would recommend Five Points Toward a Deeper Experience of God's Grace by John Piper, which is a nice, really brief booklet on the topics we're going to be covering through our study of the doctrine of salvation. This morning, we're going to go through kind of three steps. We're going to be looking at a roadmap of sorts of where we're going to go over the next several weeks and talk about the importance of the why. Why are we doing this? Why take so much time to study through this doctrine of salvation? And then also want to discuss the goal. So today is very much a preparation for what we're going to be going through. We want our hearts and our minds to be prepared for what we're going to see in God's word. So we're going to talk about where we're going, why we're going there, and what the desired result is. So first, where are we going? The roadmap. So next week, we're going to be looking at an overview of sorts. We're going to be looking at the order of salvation, and we're going to be talking through terms and definitions. We don't want to go through and give you all of these big, long words and not understand the content of what is being communicated. So it's important that we define some of the terms, so that way as we run through the landscape, we're able to really capture what's being communicated and to understand it clearly from God's word. And then next, we're going to go into the doctrines of grace. We're going to talk through total depravity, or sometimes referred to as radical and pervasive depravity. And then we'll go through the next week um, and talk about unconditional election, or sovereign and divine election as taught in God's word. Next, we'll go through and talk about limited atonement, or definite atonement, or particular redemption, as sometimes referred to. And then after that, we'll talk about irresistible grace or effectual saving grace. And lastly, we'll cover the perseverance of the saints, or also known as perseverance of God with his saints, or the preservation of his saints. So these are all terminology that we're going to run through this, um, over the next probably two months 
Um, we're hoping to spend one week on each, but it might stretch out a little bit, uh, which is totally fine. Uh, we're not in a rush. We don't have a deadline. But we want to take time to make sure to understand what God's word teaches about God's grace specifically in regards to salvation. So these doctrines of grace are often referred to as Calvinism. And some might say, you know, this is a bit of a hot-button topic. It often ends in frustration, confusion, or sometimes even worse. And uh, isn't this just a, a little bit of a mystery we can't really fully understand? And I want to bring to our attention Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's probably a, some, for some, it's their primary doctrine of theology verse uh, of what they, what they reference to. And it starts out saying, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And some stop there and say, you know what, there's things we can't understand and we don't really need to try. It's just it's one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord. But the verse continues and says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So when we think about the categories of secret things and revealed things, we are to be good stewards of God's word. And we ought not to put secret things in the revealed things category, right? We shouldn't take something that is something that is really God's to know and for us to trust him with and try to use man's reason or man's philosophy to try to bump it into the, we're going we're gonna to submit this to the revealed category or vice versa. We shouldn't take revealed things and try to submit it into the secret things category and saying, you know what? This is just um, ignorance or passivity that I want to avoid this sort of topic and move on. So either way, we hinder our spiritual growth when we distort truth or add tensions to Scripture when it upholds things as true. So this is why bibliology was so important and why a lot of systematics start with bibliology is because Scripture has to be the highest authority. If scripture is not the highest authority, then we're going to submit instead our reason to be the highest authority, or like I mentioned, man's philosophy. It doesn't mean we throw those things away, but they must always remain in submission to God's spoken word. If we are to be faithful as the church, we must aim to equip the body of Christ with the whole counsel of God as he's revealed it for us to know. There are some here this morning that may agree and others who actually may disagree with these teachings. But if you don't agree, our prayer this morning and for this study is that you will set aside assumptions of terminology and evaluate God's word as presented to know what he says about himself. And that no matter what, as an end result, you will see how great God is and be driven to know him more through his word. If you do agree with these positions, then our prayer is that you would be the most attentive and awestruck person in the room, not because of what knowledge you have, but because of the amazing grace of our great God. Seeing God's glorious great grace ought to produce in us humility and joy and praise in our hearts for our great God. This doctrine is vital to our Christian life. It impacts how we view God. It impacts how we view the Bible. It impacts our everyday life. So let's talk about some of these importances about the doctrine of soteriology. First, we'll talk about it's important because it impacts our view of God. It's often rightly asserted that the most important thing about a person is their view of God. And many listening today have a personal relationship with God and love him. And if we are to grow in love for God, we must know how God saves 
Knowing requires reading God's word. It requires understanding God's word and enjoying and obeying God's word. If I could give a, a brief illustration, it's sort of like getting a birthday gift. If you get a birthday gift and it's wrapped in this beautiful wrapping paper and it's got a pretty gold bow on it and you set it down and you never open it and you just are grateful that you got a gift, that wouldn't make much sense. But we would take time and excitement and gratitude to open this gift, to look deeper into understanding. And sometimes if you think about when maybe you've gotten a big gift before, think about maybe when you were a teenager, if your parents ever got you a car or got you something. As you grow older, you gain even more appreciation than just the gift itself. You start to understand the cost that was involved in it. You understand the sacrifices involved in it as you gain a deeper understanding for what was really given there. And one of the things, uh, first things we need to understand about this gift of salvation is who is in charge of it. Who is in charge of it? And we see throughout scripture that salvation is owned by God. Psalm 3 verse 8 reads, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm 62 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. And famously known in Jonah 2, 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. We know that salvation is owned by God. And if it is his, then we must continue to look in scripture to find his purpose for his salvation. And as we look through scripture, we find several verses that help us understand what God's purpose is for salvation. And we see even in a test case, if we were to look at Psalm 106, this is a hymn that was written And it was about the um, book of Exodus, where God saves his people Israel out of Egypt, which we've been studying through in our Sunday morning sermon series. And you see this example of salvation and how God works to save his people. And listen to these verses, Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. God says, Our fathers were they, excuse me, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. That's what Israel did. That was their contribution. They rebelled, and they didn't consider what God had already done. And then in verse 8, it says, Yet he, being God, saved them for his name's sake, that he might be known and his mighty power. It's interesting here that God doesn't say, in his word, that his compassion for his oppressed people is the reason that he saved them, or even his desire to free them from bondage, or even God's wrath on Egypt for their cruelty was the primary reason why he saved his people. He says that he might make known his mighty power for his namesake. And we see this all throughout scripture when we see God referring to his acts of saving. In Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23, He's talking, the prophets prophesy and talking about how God will put his spirit within his people. And he says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their 
eyes. The prophet Isaiah has a similar theme in saying in chapter 48 through 9 through 11, he says in these probably most, the most God-exalting verses in the Bible, he says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, he repeats, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Again, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, Scripture reads, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The prophet Daniel, when they were in Babylon, his prayer after um, God had prophesied through Jeremiah that they would be in captivity for 70 years. He prays to the Lord, asking for mercy. And he says, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. There's this theme over and over and over again. And even um, John, in his first epistle of First uh, John chapter 2, he writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, he says, for his name's sake. And what we see in these verses and all throughout Scripture is that God's purpose for salvation when he saves his people is that it is for his glory. Ultimately, it is for his glory. And we see this as the theme even in our mission statement here as a church. Our mission here at Redemption Hill is to glorify God first and foremost in everything we do. We glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's even the chief end of man from the Westminster Catechism. What is man's greatest goal, greatest purpose, the chief end? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's glory is the centerpiece. And once we understand that all of Scripture, even salvation, is all about God's glory we also need to add two other pieces. We need to understand that God is free, meaning not bound by anything outside of himself, and that God is sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3 reads, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Romans 9, 15 says, For he says to Moses, referencing Exodus chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God says, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Notice God's right to have mercy on whom he chooses and have compassion on who he chooses. In 1 Samuel 3, verses 18, the context here is Samuel's just a little boy, and the high priest is Eli, and Samuel keeps waking up because he hears a voice, and then Eli tells him, go back to bed. If you hear a voice, say, yes, Lord. And listen to what God has to say. And, and uh, God gives Samuel a message. And then Eli, the next morning, says, hey, you need to tell me everything that God just told you. Otherwise, whatever he says, that's going to happen to you. And he actually delivers bad news. He delivers news of judgment for Eli and his household. And this is uh, what, what Scripture records in chapter 3, verse 18. It says, so Samuel told Eli everything and hid nothing from him. 
And then this was Eli's response to who God was, who he knew he was. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's, that's a, a statement that's not made with blessing. Yes, I, I would love to receive blessing, you know, like someone would say to a king, bless me as, as much as you please, do what's good in your sight. This is actually in the context of judgment, and he's submitting and saying, God is good, God is God, I am not. Let him do what seems good to him. Secondly, we want to, or thirdly, I guess we want to add, God is also sovereign. Not only is he all about his glory, he is free, but he is also sovereign. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10 reads, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Everything that God aims to do, he will accomplish because he is sovereign. He is all-powerful, and he is not hindered or stopped by anything. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Again, in Ephesians 1, verse 11 We see, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, being God. And this is what Paul writes. He says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. When we realize that God is all about his glory and that he is free, meaning unlimited or unconstrained in his pursuit, And that he is sovereign, meaning having authority and power over all of his creation. We see that God is actually needless. He is not in need of anything. Acts 17.25, Paul's at the Areopagus and he's proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And he's saying, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Again, in Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Christ, says, Christ, for by Christ all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What we need to realize is that God is a creator, and we are created. He is infinite, and we are finite. He has need of nothing He is not dependent on anything. We are dependent on him. We are the needy ones. God is needless. God's grace is amazing because it's something that isn't merited. It's not something we could earn. It's not something that we deserve. But what's amazing about it too is that it's not something that we can repay. There's nothing we can give him in return. There's no saving grace from God so that we get something from him. So he is satisfied in us in some way that he's lacking. There is no lack in who God is. And we need to understand that as we dive into these doctrines of grace and understanding how God saves. He did it, as we see in these passages, for his name's sake. 
His name is great, and we are eternally blessed by His glorious grace. This gives us confidence to know that He will do it for His name's sake. If we see God as this needy being who is desperately needing the love of His subjects, we make God small and we make man big. And there's this common error that can be summarized in this way, that there's either a man-centered view or there's a God-centered view. If man is the centerpiece of salvation or of Scripture as a whole, we're sure to fall short. And if we see, as God testifies through his word, that salvation in all of Scripture is all about God, then we put ourselves in a position to actually flourish under his amazing grace. I think uh, an illustration of irony a bit Uh, might help us here, thinking about how our culture celebrates birthdays. My wife's pregnant, and we're in the midst of, I'm getting to observe uh, how and everything that goes through a mother's life as she bears a child for nine months. The smells change, eyesight can change, the sleeping is uncomfortable, there's all this weight born into it, and you go, you know, to this climax of this moment, nine months later, And there's this moment of, you know, the mom becomes this transformer and you get this baby. And then every year after that, you celebrate by giving gifts to the child that arrived. (laughs) And we sit there and we think, hmm, well, we're focusing on the child. But really, it seems like if we remember this actual event and everything that led up to it, there's a whole lot of work that went into it from the mom. So footnote, make sure you call your mom on your birthday. But more importantly, more importantly, we're told in Scripture that being saved is to be born again. We're to be born again. And when we see this idea of Scripture as being born again, we realize it's not about us. It's about what God has done in his amazing grace. But not only does this doctrine of salvation show us uh, that it's important in regards to our view of God, how we see who God is. But it's important because of our view of the Bible as well. Whether you're uh, two days old or 200 years old, I would love to recommend this Bible story book called the Big Picture Story Bible. It does an amazing job of capturing um, from Scripture through Genesis to Revelation this theme of God's people, God's place, and God's rule. And in Genesis, you see that God puts his people as the creator. He makes his people, puts them in the Garden of Eden, his place, and they are to be under his rule in a right relationship with God. But they break God's rule. They would not have God as their king. And so what happens is they're kicked out of God's place. And God promises a redeemer to bring them back to himself. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. God makes promises to his people. And he says, if you will have me as your God, if you will be my people, then I will have you in my place. And time and time again, the problem is the sinfulness of man's heart. And again and again, we see that God says they will not have me as their king. So they are kicked out of God's place. And so, again, we see more promises. And ultimately, we fast forward to the New Testament, and we see in Scripture that God brings and sends his son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, who lived the perfect life that his people could not, and who died the death that they deserve, and rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave, so that God's people could be cleansed. So that it could be brought into God's place to be with him and to be under his righteous and perfect rule forever. That is the narrative of scripture. And when we sit here and we think about us, 
We think about where we want to be or how we want to be in charge. That's putting man at the center of this narrative of Scripture where God is the main character. From Genesis to Revelation, the character that's always there is God. He is the centerpiece of his word. And if we come to God's word thinking of the stories about us, then we're sure to read ourselves into every page of Scripture. And we'll see these moral tales that are supposed to motivate us for having our best life now. I love how Paul Tripp answered a question. He was asked, what should a Christian be looking for in their Bible? And he responds initially by answering with one word. And he says, glory. Glory is how he answers. He says, every day, uh, if I am not beckoned and wooed, if I could use the term in a positive sense, seduced by God's glory, then I will be wooed and tempted and seduced by something else. And literally, the thing that splashes across every page of God's word is the magnificent glory of God. The scriptures are meant not just to be a sort of logistical wisdom book, Paul Tripp asserts. It's not just a logistical wisdom book that helps us to live a life that's better for us. The scriptures are meant to finally point us to that one place where our hearts can rest and be satisfied because we are exposed to the wonder of our glorious God. If we don't know that it's all about him, we will not live for him. We will live for us. Which takes us to our third reason for why soteriology is so important. Our third reason for studying the doctrines of salvation is that it impacts not just our view of God, not just our view of the Bible, but it impacts our view of everyday life. As we investigate God's word to see how God saves, it ought to have an impact on how we live each and every day. We need to apply God's word, not merely accept it as intellectually true. When you think about these different aspects I have listed here, maybe in ministry, do I serve so that I can get something in return, or do I sacrifice so that I may point others to God's glorious grace? How about in prayer? When we know who God is, we can pray with confidence knowing that it's God who saves his people. We can pray in confidence. How about parenting? When we understand how our Heavenly Father treats his children, that ought to motivate us in our relationship with our children. When we understand a God-centered view of Scripture and all of history, that means we won't have child-centered parenting. That's all about catering to the child or even parent-centered parenting. That says, this whole relationship is about me getting what I want out of it. But instead, it's going to be about God. What about personal growth? In personal growth, our understanding of the doctrine of salvation should help us and motivate us to be not self-reliant, but spirit-dependent. Knowing that it's God who saves us and who sustains us all the way to the end for his name's sake. What about marriages? How often people fall prey to the idea that marriage is about their happiness or even about their spouse's happiness. But when we recognize God's grace and salvation, we can better understand what marriage is supposed to actually picture. It's the gospel. It's salvation. And we could go through each of these, the workplace, politics, science, art, education, hospitals, whatever it is, think about all the buildings involved with this. You could write soli deo gloria over all of them. 
And it should be written on our hearts and it be evident in our mouths as we go into and exit each of these places in our lives. It's what we're to be all about. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The subject of soteriology is priceless and precious to the Christian believer. It impacts our view of who God is. It impacts our view of the Bible and how we read it and understand it and apply it, even to our lives as we live differently. But we also want to emphasize this morning not just the importance of this study we're about to embark on, but also the goal. And if I'm to summarize for us the the content of our goal, I would say the goal in this study is to get a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace toward sinners. Our goal as we study, as a summary statement, is to get a greater understanding from God's word about God's sovereign grace toward sinners. And sadly, there's many ways that maybe you've encountered in your life how people may even hold to these same Calvinistic doctrinal truths, but that don't live out uh, exactly in the same way that we're describing what the, the fruit of this should be. So I want to talk about some of these failures first. What are some ways maybe that we see this go wrong? Well, if our goal is to get a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace towards sinners, then there's obviously some ways that this fruit can be borne out incorrectly. And maybe some of these terms are lost to us, but uh, to explain some of them, Reformed Gnosticism would be like this special sort of knowledge. Gnosticism would say, I have this special enlightenment and understanding. I, I know this special information. You don't. You create a dependency type relationship where you're, you don't really have a good relationship with God because you need to know what I know rather than knowing what God's word says. Or intellectualism sometimes comes up. This knowledge is equal to spirituality type deal where I'm actually pleasing to God because of what I know. It's really about me. Again, a pitfall that we can often see. What about reformed apathy? Where we see knowledge is actually more important than obedience, which is not what we see in scripture. The more we know about God, we have to love him more and live in obedience to him. Or antinomianism where there's this idea that we're not under the moral law anymore, and we just kind of passively resign to, well, God's in charge, and God's going to do what God's going to do, so I just can sit on the sidelines. No, that's not what we see in these doctrines. That's not what we see in God's grace, that it's actually the means by which we live in obedience to him. This is not a Jesus-take-the-wheel doctrine. This is God is in charge, and he calls us and commands us to obey him. We ought not to fall off the horse that way. Or what about anti-emotion? Sometimes... Uh, Calvinists are accused of being the frozen chosen or cold and unapproachable because of this heady information. That ought not to be, right? That ought to be a failure as a result, if that's the result. The result ought to be this warmth of understanding the amazing grace that God's given. And we ought to be warmly affectionate to desire to see God's grace poured out on others as well. What about chronic introspection? Some result thinking through this in worry and doubt what they know to be true, and they can fall off into this spiral of thinking about themselves. And we see in Scripture there's this biblical idea of self-examination, but not chronic introspection. Because self-examination, according to the Bible, leads to faith, it leads to love, it leads to believing what God says is true. Whereas this result is more about doubting and worrying and, and constantly panicking about themselves. These are, these are ways that 
uh, we would fail to walk away. If this is the fruit of the result, there's a failure here, but it's not because of the truth. It's not the content that's producing the failure. It's our sinfulness. In each of these situations, there's pride involved. There's pride in our sinful hearts. And we need to recognize that each of these responses is sinful because it is, is not applying God's truth. It makes God's word less important and our interpretation or application more important. We need to understand and apply God's word as he has said. And it ought to produce in us a humility, not a pride. A humility to, to trust God more as he revealed himself through his word. Some examples of people throughout history who have held to these doctrines of grace. This is the result in their lives. Augustine, driven to passionate prayer. Edwards was driven to a dynamic delight in his relationship with God. Whitfield was driven to eager evangelism. Mueller, driven to sacrificial service. And Spurgeon was driven to powerfully preach. So if we come into this doctrine of salvation and we have little expectation for the change that will happen in our lives, we're not seeing and expecting God to do great things by his grace. So I think for us it's important as we kind of step into this topic over the next several weeks, we ought to be praying, God, how do you want to radically change me by your powerful grace through this study? How can I better be submitted to your word as we continue through this? Specifically, I wanted to talk through some aspects of fruit. Fruit that God would be delighted to bear in our lives as we submit to these truths. First, let's talk horizontally. Let's talk horizontally about what fruit could be born in our lives and our relationships with others in the church. God's word would help us to see that there ought to be patience, there ought to be kindness, and there ought to be gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, 23-26 reads, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, those that are trusting Christ as their Lord and Master, this is their response. They must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. And next comes one of the most probably Calvinistic verses in the Bible. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. As we engage with one another, we ought to talk about these doctrines of grace in a way that shows God's patience and kindness and gentleness in the tone of our communication. John Newton, the famous author of Amazing Grace, says this. He says, I am a friend of peace. And being deeply convinced that no one can profitably understand the great truths and doctrines of the gospel, speaking of Calvinism, any farther than he is taught of God, I have not a wish to obtrude my own tenets upon others in a way of controversy, yet I do not think myself bound to conceal them. I think John Newton understand these verses in 2 Timothy. He understood that controversy was different than contending for the faith and the manner in which we communicate matters. So as you discuss with one another on this subject of salvation, make sure that whether it's before class or after class or after church as you go out to lunch with one another, there ought to be a tone in the conversation of patience and kindness 
and gentleness. Even after the class is done, it's not like, well, we covered that subject. You should be 100% where I am. I think if we reflect on how we've studied God's word over the years and recognize that God is patient with us and we need to be patient with others, that it will impact not just how we communicate the content of truth, but how we convey these precious truths as well. And God's word is clear that we're to communicate in truth and in love. How about vertically? What sort of fruit does God desire to bear in our lives, in our relationship with him? I think first and foremost, there ought to be the fruit of thankfulness. There ought to be a response of thankfulness. Luke chapter 17 is the recording in verses 12 through 19 of the 10 lepers that were healed. And as the Lord was entering a village, there were 10 lepers, and he told them to go to the priest. And on their way to the priest, they were healed. And in verse 15, God's word records, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. That ought to be our response when we recognize that our hearts were stained with sin and that God's salvation has provided cleansing so that we can be in a right relationship with a holy God. There ought to be a response of thankfulness. So a question for us this morning is, have you taken time recently to thank God for saving you? God has done his amazing work of salvation. And if he's done it in your life, you ought to thank him. You ought to take time to sit and reflect Secondly, in regards to our relationship with God, there ought to be a, uh, a fruit of love in our lives. First John mentions that God loved us, and that's why we love him, right? We love God not because uh, we loved him first, but it says that God loved us first. That's why we respond in love to him. So for us, we need to understand, has your heart been stirred in love for God for his glorious grace toward you in salvation? When we recognize that God has no need of us, that makes love rich. And we ought to respond with a heart of love to God for what he has done. And lastly, I'll mention worship. There ought to be worship in the lives of God's people for God. Worship is the only appropriate response after beholding a holy God who is infinite in power and overwhelming in grace. And all of our lives ought to be worship. This doesn't just mean singing, but I did want to mention a hymn that came to mind in studying through this this week. A hymn we often sing called, O Great God. It says, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within, and I had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life and opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, you gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You, you are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. May that be our prayer personally as we go through this study in the next several weeks. And may we be amazed as the Lord bears much fruit in his church for his glory. 
Next week, we'll continue our study, and we'll go into part two of soteriology, where we'll cover the overview, and we'll talk through terms and definitions. And as always, if you guys have any questions in regards to this study, please do email them to us. We plan to have a Q&A at the end, and possibly, depending on how long it goes, we might stick one in the middle um, to make sure we're, we're covering questions as they come up. So email those to info at rhlawrence.org. That's info at rhlawrence.org. And with that, we'll be dismissed, and we'll see you back here at 1030.